chapter 19, verses 23 to verse 30. These are the words of God. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to each soldier apart, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was without seam, woven from the top in one piece. They said, therefore, among themselves, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore, the soldiers did these things. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother, and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus, therefore, saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. These are the words of God. Let's ask his blessing now. Fathers, we open your word, open our hearts. Let your spirit have his way with us. The work of Christ on the cross is world changing. And it is the means, the only means by which any of us, anyone, can have sins forgiven and eternal life granted. So let each one here deal honestly with their heart before this text, with their status before you. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, as we've continued through this, uh, this Gospel of John, we've seen several times, actually, that the authorities had been after Jesus, even to the point of wanting him to put to death. As early as John 5, 17 and 18, when Jesus was defending his healing of the man um, who was lame beside the pool, um, of healing on the Sabbath, he said to them, my father's been working until now and I, have, and I have been working. Therefore, it says, the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. And so the authorities were after Jesus for quite some time. We saw several times where he avoids capture. He just steps away and is able to to avoid their, uh, get out of their midst. God seems to, the Father protecting him. God the Father had his protection over Jesus all of the time. And Jesus we've seen, as we saw last Lord's Day, even, even as he's hanging on the cross, is fully confident that everything is in the hands of the Father. And everything is under his authority as well. In this passage now, Jesus rebukes them for not seeing who he is from the testimony of the scripture back in, in chapter 5, I mean, they, were, they claim to hold so dearly. He said to them, these, these authorities that claim to be the ones controlling and overseeing the, the scriptures, he says to them, you search the scriptures for in them you think you may have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me, but you're not willing to come to me that you may have life. People are easily satisfied, at least outwardly, that they're doing the right thing, they're keeping the right laws, they're basically good people by the way that they interpret either the scriptures or whatever they've determined to be the holy standards. And they will stand before the one who is the holy standard, and they will demand that in fact they are worthy, that they are um, in good standing before God or before their creator. 
And Jesus says, but if you reject me, you're rejecting the standard. If you reject me, you're rejecting the truth. You reject me, you're rejecting all that exists as an opportunity for you to be right with God. To be right with God perfectly. So among other things, John would have us meditate on how scripture was particularly filled in the, fulfilled in the cru crucifixion of Jesus. And I want to remind you also that it could be 10, 20, 30 years since the first gospel, probably the gospel of Matthew was written. Those have been distributed. The, the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, have been distributed, and people know them. Paul, John is probably writing to his congregation at Ephesus, first of all. And as, he's, as he does so, he's regularly of not telling all of the stories that all of the other uh, gospel writers are telling, and he's particularly bringing out other ones. We, we learn more about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ um, that, that does not exist in the other three gospels. And, and, it, and it, it's kind of interesting if you think about it, because John, of all the gospel writers, John would be the only eyewitness. He would be the one who would be, it would be possible for him to really lay out every single thing that took place. But he wants to specifically mention certain things that, that are both inspired by the Holy Spirit, but also I can imagine in his mind as he's putting this gospel together so that we would, we would believe on the Lord Jesus, so that we have a greater strength, um, a greater faith in believing in Jesus and walking with him, that he's going, to, he's going to bring out certain aspects of what took place at the crucifixion. We should be listening and watching for these. And the last word that John records, Jesus saying, and the only gospel writer who, says, who, who tells us this before he gave up his spirit was tetelestai, tetelestai, that is, it is finished. And as we go through, you, you, it's, it is finished, there's a question, what, what was finished? What was finished? And, and for each and every person on the face of the earth, answering that question Maybe the most important question you ever seek an answer for. What was finished on the cross? What did Christ accomplish on the cross? And so we dive back into the gospel story, into the story of the crucifixion. We pick up in verse 23, where we are told of soldiers, four of them, um, normal, and this would be a normal course around uh, a, uh, a crucifixion. There'd be four soldiers. And it actually would be normal as a part of the shaming to just take their clothes um, and, and, and divide them among themselves. And we're told particularly that there's this tunic and, and it isn't, uh, it's not dividable. It's one, it's without a seam. And so they decide, we'll, we'll go, go ahead and gamble for it. So these four soldiers divide Christ's garments and they do so as he's hanging naked on the cross. The tunic remaining and possibly the most expensive piece, they determined to cast lots for it. Or rather, really what's happening, what John wants us to note, note right away is that David had prophesied that that's exactly what they would do. That's what we sang in Psalm 22. They did this possibly as Jesus chanted Psalm 22. So he, we know that Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's probably the case that Jesus would have continued to chant or sing through that Psalm 22 as he hung on the cross and the, and the very events that he is singing and chanting are taking place right before him. And so, a thousand years before it happened, David saw by means of the Spirit that Christ would have his hands and feet pierced, Psalm 22, verse 16. That he would die at the hands of his strong enemies, verses 12 and 13. That it would be an agonizing death, verse 15 and verse 17. 
that they would gamble over his garments, verse 18, and that he would thirst terribly, verse 15. And Jesus would have chanted these, would have spoken these things as they occurred on the cross. Knowing these details helps us to see the fulfillment of prophecy. It encourages us to see the sovereignty of God in the smallest of details. God is not just sovereign like in, in this vast way where every once in a while he intervenes into, into the events of mankind and changes things up so um, what he wants to happen actually happens. He's, he's not like, um, he's not like the, the big hitter uh, in the bottom of the ninth that's going to change the game. He, he's been involved with every pitch, with every swing, with every hit, the entire game. He has been involved in every aspect of your life, every aspect of every life, to, so that the story of this world brings glory, the perfect glory to his name. And we see this in the, in the details that take place with regard to Christ's death. And therefore, we, we know that God has great purposes in the details. He has great purposes in the details. But let that sink deeper for us for a second. We're told to sing the Psalms like Jesus did. And what we see Jesus doing is finding fellowship in David's suffering. Psalm 22 is, is David, first of all, recording his own sufferings. David had some times where he was in deep distress, where his life was threatened, where he was almost dead. And he writes about this in Psalm 22. Jesus finds himself in fellowship with David as the son of David, as he sings and chants this psalm, um, in essence, with him, with, using those words in his own sufferings and prayers before his, before his father while he's hanging on a tree. We have fellowship in the same way with our Savior in his sufferings as we sing the psalms, and then we learn from the psalms how to argue and plead with God through our own sufferings before the face of God. This is why we were given the Psalter. We are given the Psalter so that we might enter into the sufferings, into the joys and rejoicings, in, into the instructions, the histories of, of, of God's word, and that we would enter into them with the saints of old, that we would, we would sing those and reflect on them with the saints of old. Remember, as we gather together, we are not just gathering together in this place. We are told in Hebrews 12 that we are lifted up with an innumerable number of angels and saints who have gone before us at the throne of Jesus, singing the praises of the Lord Jesus Christ, singing the praises of God the Father with Jesus. And as we do so, he has given us a songbook that both in, is inspired by him and then inspires us to write other things as well. And we sing these before God, entering into the ongoing and eternal praise that is taking place. And that eternal praise includes crying out to him in the midst of sufferings joining with countless others who have suffered many of the sufferings, the very sufferings you are going through right now. While they're, very, while they're individual for you, you, you are able to join in through the Psalms with those who have suffered the same kinds of sufferings, loss of, loss of loved ones, um, difficult times in, in, in a job situation or financial situation, relationships that have broken down. You are able to enter into persecutions and, and other kinds of trials. You're enter, able to enter into with other saints... And with the, saints, with the saints together corporately as we sing these psalms before God. We're doing what Jesus did as we sing psalms in, in this worship service. And so we're, we're learning then how to argue and plead with God in the midst of our own sufferings as well. And to do so before the face of God. Of course, the casting of his garments also signified his shameful death. Jesus stripped naked 
exposed in his human frailty and horrible, agonizing torture. The shame of nakedness is part of the curse for our sin. And so the curse of our sin, he's hanging on the cross and and he's receiving the curse, the, the, the wrath of God for our sin. And part of that wrath is the shame that, that came forth um, for, um, in, in our naked exposure to, to God. When, when Adam and Eve were first created, we're told in Genesis 2 that they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. And then in Genesis 3, 7, it, it tells us that after they had sinned, that the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. Sin br- brings about shame. And sin brings about shame we want to cover and we want to hide. Ultimately, we want to cover and hide that sin from God. We do a pretty good job of trying to hide our sin in our sh- um, from one another as well. But ultimately, we're hiding from God in that shame. Unless someone takes care of that shame for us. Along with the curse of the sin, of, of the sin but the consequences also, that shame that we have before God. Crucifixion was a public renunciation and rejection of the whole man. Stripped naked, the entire man, his entire life, his entire reputation, his entire riches, all relationships, stripped and removed from him, and he hangs on the cross naked and alone. That's what the Romans wanted to be declared of anyone who is crucified. You are removed from anyone, from anything, and from any hope. And that's where Jesus hung on the cross. And Isaiah foretold this kind of reproach when he says in Isaiah 53, he is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid as it was our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Calvin writes, Christ was stripped of his garments that he might clothe us with his righteousness. His naked body was exposed to the insults of men that we may appear in glory before the judgment seat of God. The Apostle John would have you meditate upon that. He would have you remember the shame that Jesus bore on the cross. The Holy Spirit would have you meditate upon the fact that not only was your sin taken, but that shame that you had done those things, that shame that those things had been done to you, the the, the shame that you would have before a holy and righteous God was all taken by Christ as he hung on that tree, smitten and, and afflicted and yet bearing all of our iniquity for us. Therefore, the soldiers did these things, John writes. Now behold, there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. We're we're told, uh, um, if you you go through all of the different accounts and try to match these women, um, we, of course, know who, who Jesus' mother is. She is Mary. But then Mary, um, Mary the wife of Clopas, is only, is only mentioned here in John. Um, there's an ancient um, writing that, that gives some credence to the fact that um, Mary, the wife of Clopas, that Mary was actually Joseph's wife. 
We don't know for sure. But it would be another family member, which might make sense because his mother's, uh, because Mary's sister, Salome, is also there. And Salome, um, most likely, is the wife of Zebedee, um, this, the mother then of John and James. Um, and so we have John's mother there, and then John is standing there as well. And then for the first time, Mary Magdalene is mentioned in, in the Gospel of John. The whole, the whole story about Mary is, is not given in the Gospels. She shows up here, and then, and then she's going to show up uh, in a very important part of the close of the Gospel of John in, in the next chapter. So we'll set her aside from now. But we have these family members, Mary who was healed by seven demons, and, and, and then John, the, the dip- disciple whom he loves, standing by. And, and so Jesus we, is on the cross, he's dying, and he's dying for the sins of the world. There on the cross, he's doing what he is doing for others. He's bearing, his, he's bearing the sins for all of us on the cross. Now, when you're under extreme pain, it is hard to think of anything but yourself and that pain that you're under. And yet, his mind is not self-absorbed. The mind of Christ was on the concern of others. To have the mind of Christ is to be concerned for others. To have the mind of Christ is to be concerned for others. As it says in Philippians 2, that we are to be like Christ in considering others more important than ourselves. And we see this, we see this actually happening as Jesus hangs on the cross. His mind is not self-absorbed. He had prayed for the forgiveness for those who were crucifying him in their ignorance in Luke 23, 34. And, and he had um, promised the penitent thief of salvation in paradise. While hanging on the cross, he basically shares the gospel. With, with, with one, one other member who's, who's hanging on the cross. But John now focuses on another concern that Jesus takes care of, and that is his mother. He says, um, he, he sees the disciple who is next to him, uh, who, who is the one that he loved standing by, and he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And do not think, this is just like he's, uh, what, he said to his, what he said to his mother when he says, gune, woman, um, is, is a honorific title. Is, when he, he said that also at, at the wedding at Cana when he says, woman, this is not, my, this is not yet my time. This is a, an, really an honorific title that is given. So uh, it's a kindness that he said, when he says to her, woman, behold your son. And then to the disciple, behold your mother. Then it says, and from that hour, the disciple, that disciple took her to his own home. So there is strength and grace in Christ to avoid being consumed with one's own afflictions, but only if one has the same faith as Christ in the goodness of his loving Father. So in the midst of extreme pain and torture, knowing he is going to die, he is able to not let that absorb him. In the midst of terrible trials and persecutions and difficulties in our lives then, in Christ, we are able to not be self-absorbed with what is going on and with the difficulties going on in our lives. But there's a temptation to do so. But we see in Christ and we learn from Christ how to receive by God's spirit the ability to be like Christ as we, even in the moments of our death. Dying well and faithfully includes looking past oneself and providing as one is able for the well-being of those you will be leaving behind. Um, and, so, and so we see that this is exactly is what Jesus is doing in his final minutes before he dies as he turns um, to his mother and gives her 
uh, her care over to John. Some will ask also, what happened to Jesus' brothers? They're not there. Um, remember, they all live up in Capernaum, up north. Apparently, they have not come down for Passover, and they're not believing um, in Jesus. They're the ones that kind of goaded him to go up to the, to the festival in John chapter 8. Um, and and, and uh, they said, well, if you really... If, if you really want to have this ministry you're talking about, you really need to go down there and, and, and tell everybody who you are. And Jesus says, it's not yet my time. And then he slips down later in the week and does that. that, was, that were, those were his brothers that did that. We're told in Acts that, in fact, they, they did come to faith after the resurrection and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. They're the one, they are there at Pentecost. They are there with the disciples um, praying uh, on that day. So um, the, the work of the resurrection, we also know in the Council of the Resurrection, that Jesus met with at least one of the brothers um, uh, personally. And so um, things happened from the time of this crucifixion until the resurrection and, and then from the resurrection to, the, to Pentecost. But I want to mention just also because you might, be, you might know about this, this passage, 25 through 27, this woman, behold your son and behold your mother, saying to John, is used by the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic theologians will treat this passage as teaching Mary to be co-redemptrix along with her son. They insist that Jesus was committing the apostles and the church into the care of his mother, and some even take it as the installment of Mary over the church as his ultimate achievement on the cross. And so when he turns to the disciple and he says, John, behold your mother... They want to take that phrase and say, so here's what's happening. John, representing all the apostles, John, representing the church, is told to behold and adore um, Mother Mary. Well, that's completely out of the context of what's going on here. It's, it's, it's really turning on, on its head what actually is happening. Um, Jesus was giving his mother over to the care of John and the church, not the other way around. He was caring for his mother. The previous night, he had made clear that it was the Holy Spirit, it was to the Holy Spirit that he committed his followers. Remember in John 14, where Jesus says, and I will pray the Father and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. It is the work of the person of the Holy Spirit that grants us the deep communion in Christ towards the Father. It is not his mother. It is not his mother. You, you, we don't pray to, to Mother Mary to, that she would intercede for us before Jesus. We give thanks to God for Mary's faithfulness. We, we give thanks for her glorious song that she writes and we sing in, in Luke, Luke chapter 1. But we don't adore her. We don't worship her. We, we worship through the spirit that was granted to us, um, Jesus and his Father. And we give great thanks for the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit, not in the work of Mary. And so, um, now, after this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Another phrase that is only in the Gospel of John. And once again, John tells us that scripture is fulfilled as he says this. Well, back in Psalm 22, verse 15, it says, My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. 
But some commentators will say that there may be also a reference to Psalm 69, verse 3. Psalm 69 had been quoted a couple other times in John's Gospel. And, and Psalm 69 is a psalm of lament in the midst of uh, the voice of one who's being persecuted and destroyed, crying out to God. And 69.3 says, I'm weary with my crying, my throat is dry, my eyes fail while I wait for my God. And so scripture is fulfilled as Jesus thirsts. But this, this thirsting, which would have been part of the natural torment during crucifixion, having suffered a great loss of blood and fluids from the scourging, piercings, and then later from the, hot expo or the exposure to the hot sun. But again, there's more to consider here than just the fact that he thirsts. Why does John want to make sure that we see this? Well, there's some irony that's in the Gospel of John, particularly because of this. Jesus, in John's Gospel particularly, is recorded that he says, I thirst. Well, first, remember the story of the rich man and Lazarus, where the former begged for a cool drop of water to relieve his anguish as he was tormented in judgment. Jesus was experiencing the sufferings of hell, the thirst of hell, our righteous judgment. And so now the one who offered living water, if they would come to him, cries out in thirst as he suffers the consequences of our sin on our behalf. You see that? The one who, in, in John's gospel, in John's gospel alone, he cries out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me, and I give him rivers of living water. Rivers, rivers, rivers of living water will flow out of him. That's in John's gospel. And in John's gospel, in order for us to receive that, we have Jesus on the cross crying out, I thirst. I thirst. All was poured out for us. Spurgeon, Spurgeon says of this, he says, we can understand the significance of Jesus' suffering when we realize what a poignant picture of hell he presented when he cried, I thirst. Sin, and think about this for yourself, sin often begins with a sensual appetite, as it did in the eating of fruit in the garden. And it leads, sin then leads, to an everlasting sensual torment. It begins with a sensual appetite, and it ends with sensual torment. Part of the sufferings of hell will be the deprivation of every form of comfort. Man refused to obey his creator, and the time will come when the Creator will refuse to succor man. Spurgeon goes on, If Jesus had not thirsted, every one of us would have thirsted forever, afar from God, with an impassable gulf between us and heaven. Our sinful tongues, blistered by the fever of passion, must have burned forever, had not his tongue been tormented with the thirst in our stead. John wants you to know that Jesus' thirst is this unsatisfied, un, unable to be satisfied passion and torment that all those who are, are in hell, who will be in hell, will suffer forever. The passions of desire must be put to death, mortify the flesh here, do so by the Spirit, do so in faith, and do so knowing that because of the wonderful gift of God, you will not suffer the passion of torment in hell for eternity. And that should motivate us both to grab on, to enjoy the grace of God, and enjoy the grace of God every time passions, lawful passions, are, are, are taken care of. That, that God grants us so many good things. How many, how many breakfasts were eaten this morning just among us? How many hunger pains were taken care of just this morning? 
the, 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 the passions, the desires that we have that God gives us so many times are taken care of. No passions will be taken care of when we are outside of the blessing and presence of God. That's what Spurgeon is getting after. If Jesus hadn't thirsted, if he had not suffered in that particular way, we would have thirsted forever instead. So that's first, I thirst. Secondly, this. John, John then mentions, and only John mentions this. He says, um, in verse 29, Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine. Now, other, other gospels talk about that. And there's actually, there's, there's two different times that Jesus has offered wine. First, he's offered wine with myrrh. That's like a, that's like a, a, a painkiller of sorts. And that's offered to him before they put him on the cross, before they pierce his hands and feet. Uh, and then there's another case where there's this sour wine that is offered to him. Um, and the other gospels talk about it, although they don't mention that Jesus has cried out, I thirst. Sa- uh, sour wine would have been something that Roman soldiers might have with them. Um, remember, they wouldn't have that nice bottled water that you have in that container that can keep things cool for a long time. So they're out in the hot sun, and they would have a soured wine um, as, as something to help refresh them, um, quench their thirst as they're out. And so, apparently, somebody takes some of the sour wine, um, and, and they, they, they put a sponge on it, um, attach that somehow to a hyssop, maybe onto a branch, and then they lift it up to Jesus' mouth. But John's the only one who also mentions that it is put on hyssop, that it's put on hyssop. The hyssop branch, the hyssop branch was used in Old Testament sacrifices, and this wouldn't be missed at all by John's readers. While the sour wine is assuaging Jesus' thirst, his blood is assuaging God's holy wrath. On the Day of Atonement, the priest would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies, the very center of the temple. In Hebrew, in Hebrew the word for, word for mercy seat means, actually it's more literally this, the place of propitiation. The place of propitiation. And so when, 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 they, when the priest walked in and sprinkled blood from the substituted sacrifice on the behalf of the people and, and sprinkled that upon the mercy seat, he was placing the blood of, of the sacrificed substitute on the place of propitiation where God's wrath would be satisfied because of the sins of God's people but then because of the atonement that was made on, 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 on behalf of God's people. So, what do we have going on here? Well, the writer of Hebrews, um, so the, the Greek translation, by the way, is hilasteria, hilast, uh, hilasterian, I'm sorry, hilasterian or hilasmus. And, and that's important because the writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus made propitiation for the sins of his people in this sacrifice. And that word later on in, in Hebrew, in, in, in the book of Hebrews, is translated for us mercy seat when he's talking about the different furniture in Hebrews. The same word is used there. And then Paul will use that same word in Romans 3.25. Listen to Romans 3.25. Whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. That can be translated simply this. Whom God set forth as a mercy seat. As a place of propitiation. As the place where the blood would be, would be sprinkled in the presence of God to say to God, um, and remember that on that mercy seat, underneath that mercy seat would have been the, the law of God. The law of God has been broken. The law of God judges us. And then the blood covers the curse. The, bl- the blood takes care of the penalty for that sin. 
All of this is happening. All of this is this happening when, when we know that blood is being sprinkled um, upon a people to cleanse them. And we're told that a hyssop branch is used to, to take this sour wine to assuage the thirst of Jesus. 1 John 2, 2, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. The old temple was just a shadow. Jesus is the new temple. It was in the temple where the Holy of Holies was, and in the center of the Holy of Holies was the mercy seat. Jesus is the new temple, and Jesus is the new mercy seat. The old mercy seat was just a shadow. Jesus is the new mercy seat, the new place of propitiation. And the other gospel writers, I believe it's Matthew, will tell us that at this time, the temple, the, 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 um, um, the curtain in the temple that separated the holy place from the holy of holies was supernaturally torn into two, opening up. Nobody could go into the holy of holies. Nobody could see into the Holy of Holies. If you dared to look into the Holy of Holies, you were told you would die. And, and yet, that the old temple was done. That When Christ died on the cross, all of the shadows, he, he's done with them now. The real thing is here. And so the temple is ripped open, and, we, and, and anyone could see the mercy seat. Because that mercy seat was no longer the place of propitiation. Jesus hanging on the cross was now the place of propitiation. And so... Jesus says in verse 30, when he had received the sour wine, he cries out, it is finished. In English, it's three words. In Greek, it is just one, tetelestai. It is finished. Jesus, hanging on the cross, lips so parched with thirst, takes enough sour wine to issue his final decree before death. It was not a cry of defeat. It was a cry of victory. John does not mention how Jesus uttered this word, but the other gospels record that Jesus in his last moments cried out with a loud voice. Those other gospel accounts don't tell us what he said. They said he cried out with a loud voice. John tells us what he said. Having finished and accomplished all that he had to do, Jesus cried out. Before he cried out, got a little sip of something. Mm -hmm. And then he cried out. Tetelestai. It's finished. It's done. The end, of, the end of Psalm 22 says this. He has done it. It can be translated, it's finished. It's completed. The, end of Psalm, Psalm, the beginning of Psalm 22 begins, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it ends, it is finished. He has done this. It's accomplished. It was a declaration of victory. John doesn't... Um, so this cry of victory takes place in a day of great sorrow and suffering. It was a day of great defeat, but it was a great day of defeat for the enemy, not for Jesus, not for God. What had Christ finished? What had Christ finished? Remember I said, that's, that's probably the most important question to answer. What had Christ accomplished? He had finished his obedience, first of all. He had finished his obedience unto death, even death on a cross. Philippians 2.8 tells us this. Christ was obedient perfectly for God the Father. He obeyed his Father's will in every aspect. Hebrews tells us that he was tempted in all ways, yet without sin. Our Lord had become the fulfillment of all the ceremonial laws. He was the perfect sacrifice of which all the Mosaic sacrifices were simply types and shadows. Jeff talked about this during the, call, uh, the corporate prayer time. That, that all, all, all of those sacrifices were 
not imperfect. They weren't wrong. They weren't a sin. They were ineffective in that they could not atone for sin. All they could do is point to the atonement that was going to take place. And now, in that once for all perfect sacrifice, it was finished. It was done. The old covenant was ended. There is no longer any need to offer sacrifices for sin. Christ had come to fulfill the prophecies of the Old Testament. He had bruised the serpent's head, having disarmed principalities and powers, and he had made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in the cross. The reign of the serpent was over. It was done. He saw Satan fall like lightning, he says. He, he had, the principalities and powers are nailed to the cross. They're shamed because of the cross. But finally, finally, and maybe most importantly for you, for each and every one who will take this as God's word by faith. To our great benefit, Christ became a full, perfect, and complete propitiation, a mercy seat for us, that God may be both just and the one who justifies. I want to read to you that passage that, that speaks of the mercy seat in Romans chapter 3, of that propitiation, a little more lengthier passage to end here. It is Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. But now, the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe. For there's no difference... For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a mercy seat, a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. In every other religion, in, in every pagan religion, men make propitiation to the gods so that the gods will leave them alone. Especially in the day, days of Rome. It, it, they, the, the gods were arbitrary and capricious, and you could just get them, they could just be in a bad mood one day, and they just start doing stuff to you. And so what did you have to do? We had to make a sacrifice. Maybe you did something wrong or maybe you just needed to get them off your back, but you would go and make a propitiation. You'd hope that you'd be able to turn these gods away. And in, and in every form of, of, of worldview, be it, be, call it secular if you want, everyone tries to figure out how to make the world work for them. And when things aren't going right, we, we try to figure out how to sacrifice Superstitions abound in, in trying to, to change the world, to make, it, to make ourselves right with the world, or to make ourselves right with some kind of creator, some kind of God, some kind of special force. Only in Christianity do we have God making propitiation by himself for himself so that men can draw near to him. Only in Christianity does God do the business of propitiating in every other religion, in every other, in, in every other way, we try to make ourselves right somehow before God. We, only in Christianity do we come to realize there's no way. There, there's no possibility of coming before this holy God. And there's no possibility that I could do something 
that I could grab something and sacrifice something, that I could do a bunch of good works, that I could deny myself a whole bunch of, of, of good things, that I, I could even now stop doing the, the bad things that I have been doing. If I, and I, if I'm just good, won't God be okay with that me now? Or if I, if I argue with him that, look, God, I might not be perfect, but look at how, how much better I am than him or her over there. Nothing satisfies the eternal wrath of God that you could do, say, not do, not say. You can't do anything. You cannot propitiate his wrath. But thanks be to God, Jesus Christ paid it all and paid it all perfectly. And his blood splattered on the mercy seat, splattered on the curse that the law brings to sinners, completely satisfied, all by grace. You can't add anything to it. You can't even sin too much. It's all yours. It's free for the taking. Can we live, can we live up like a people like that? That understand the curse is done. That death is done. You will live forever in Christ Jesus. You, you, will, you really will just go to sleep on that day of death. And just for a moment and awaken in the very presence of Christ. You, you, will, you will never hear anything Anything, anytime you confess any sin before God, honestly, anything other than your sins are forgiven through Jesus Christ. You, you will never receive anything but grace and mercy and love, even in, in, even in his discipline, because he sent his son for you. Can we live as a people so full of grace like that? So understanding of the overflowing living water that is ours in Jesus Christ, who thirsted on the cross so you would never thirst. That's what he said. You will never thirst again. Remember what he said to the woman at the well? You will never thirst again. Your passions, your desires, if they're evil, he will purge them. And if they're real and natural, he will satisfy them more than anyone and anything else ever could, forever and ever. And so as the poet wrote, he hell in hell laid low, made sin, he sin or through. Bowed to the grave, destroyed it so, and death by dying slew. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are your judgments and your ways past finding out. No one but you, Lord, knew exactly what was happening as these events took place. But you were saving the world. You, having committed us all in our disobedience, had mercy on all through the cross. And Jesus would rise as the new king, the new Adam, the first fruit of the new humanity. We humbly thank you for the sacrifice of your son. And we join with him now in singing his victory and reign over all heaven and earth. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Let's stand now together and sing Psalm 22, number 42.
Please be seated. <clears throat> it is finished. That's what Jesus said. And that means that as we come to this table to sup with God with bread and wine, we are not to come with any shame, with any guilt, with anything other than thankfulness and peace with God. Because it's finished. There's nothing for us to do here but partake. Partake and rejoice and rest. This is the fellowship that is ours with the Father.